You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Really excited about today's episode and what we're going to be discussing today. I think for many of us, we get bogged down in the weeds and we think that we have to have this incredible idea, this million dollar idea or something. There needs to be this X factor that we made it because of this. And I think many of us lose sight of the fact that the path for most, for the vast majority of people that reach financial independence, it's simple. It's not always easy, but it's a simple replicable process of growing the gap between earnings and spending, and then using that to essentially buy your freedom, buy options for your life. And today we're actually gonna be talking with Jim White, who writes over at Route to Retire, who at December 31st of 2018, pulled the trigger, claimed his early retirement, and is now leveraging that newfound freedom to pursue geo-arbitrage with his family. I thought in the episode today, we could go back, we could take a look at his path, To financial independence, we could take a look at that last year, what it was like to actually go to his job of 19 years and say, I'm leaving early. I'm I'm going to retire early. And then now what are they doing with that next chapter? And help me with this. I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. And yeah, this should be a great episode just to to learn about Jim's path. And like you said, it's simple, but it's not always easy. That's a crucial piece of information to get across. And I just can't wait to hear what Jim's story was like. And not to mention, he has this fascinating, fascinating story of his retirement and his eventual move with this amazing geo-arbitrage trip. So yeah, it should be a really good one. And with that, Jim, welcome to the Choose a Pie podcast. Hey guys, so glad to be here. Crammed into my tiny apartment right now uh, while we're waiting to uh, get ready to move to Panama here down the line. This is exciting. I can't wait to dig into that. But if we were to rewind in almost 20 years you're just starting your career. And before you get your first quote unquote real job, what were you doing? Before that, I was actually at Walmart for a little bit and finally realized, hey, this isn't the the right job for me. Retail's not it for me. And uh, I was a computer major at the time. And I almost, uh, I almost went to Bentonville, Arkansas to be an engineer with Walmart. And then I realized it's Bentonville, Arkansas, and <laughs> I didn't really want to be there. So, so I changed my plans and, uh, found a new job where I ended up working for the next 20 years. Now, Bentonville, Arkansas has a fantastic Walmart museum, I've heard. Is that right? I haven't (laughs) been there, but I also know it's a dry county and uh, that I wasn't a fan of. (laughs) Okay. Well, so, (laughs) well, let's talk about this. So you you get your first job and you actually stayed in the same job for 19 years. I mean, if you look at kind of what I'm told about the way that millennials interact with jobs these days, I mean, the average career is about five before switching employers. Your entire path to financial independence was with one employer. That's crazy, right? I was uh, loyal to him. You know, he took me in. It was a small company, uh, about 40, 40 people. And uh, when he brought me in, I had no experience. And, you know, he brought me in, trained me the whole nine yards. I, I learned the ropes and did what I needed to do there. He was gracious to me, so I was gracious to him. I wouldn't encourage that. I think what you're saying about with millennials, 
if you're looking to make a higher income, I think nowadays job hopping is a lot of times the best way to do it. Jim, that sounds a lot like my path that I, well, I worked for a larger company. It was, it was a small department and I felt some loyalty to, to the people in my department. And I'm curious, were there any times along the way where you felt like exploring other job options or was it really just, Hey, I'm going to stick this out. You know, I did explore other places, but I was pretty comfortable with where I worked. He he treated me well for the first, probably about six, seven years. uh, I was an engineer in the field and, and I loved it. I loved doing different things. And at one point we decided to possibly move to Arizona. And at that time, my boss made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. He basically, you know, doubled my salary and said, uh, we're going to make a position for you to now manage the engineers. You know, it was a growing company. And so I took that position and there, there you go. I mean, it, <laughs> it, was, it was hard to beat it. But I think over the long run, it was a little tougher because it's middle management. And if you're not familiar with middle management, it, it sucks and uh, it gets, it gets a little boring. So over the long run, I think it was a little tougher because the job was now getting stale and I was just ready to move on, but I didn't want to go to another job. I was ready to be done. So I was pushing for Fi at that point and ready to, ready to call it a day. So Jim, 12, 31, 2018 at the age of 43 is when you ultimately retired, but, but your path to Fi started many, many years before that. I'm curious, like, what was the genesis of your path to FI, your savings? Like, were you a natural saver? Was this in your 20s? Talk me through what this looked like for you. Yeah, I was always a natural saver as a kid. And then uh, when I got to college, then I kind of went the other direction. I ended up being the fun guy everybody loved to hang out with. I was a guy who would go to dinner with a group of people and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this. I was, I was loving the credit cards. And uh racked up about 30 grand in debt. Whoa, and you were popular. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> but hey, people love I me. Love going to, I love going to dinner <laughs> with Jim, man. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was quite, quite popular at that time. But, uh, and then coincidentally, then when I started this job in IT, it was uh, right before the Y2K days. That's why I was actually brought in was to fight the Y2K bug. And one of the pieces of software that they had made available was Quicken 98. That's some old school stuff, but they made it free to people to use to patch the Y2K bug if people were running an earlier version. And for giggles, I installed that software just to see what it was like. And I plugged in all my information. And once I did that, I was aghast. I I just couldn't believe how much debt I was in at the time. I don't think I realized it anytime before that. Can I just pause on that? I want to make sure I'm understanding you. They wanted to run just by happenstance, Quicken software, just to see how it would respond to the Y2K transition. And it's kind of sad that there's actually individuals in our audience, probably they're like, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) Rotary phones? (laughs) But, but okay. So you're, you're, and then you are now testing this software just again, by happenstance, and you realize that your financial picture is dire. Well, not exactly, Jonathan. They had realized older versions of software were not Y2K compliant. And Quicken 98 was the first version that was. So their solution to get users off of these non-compliant versions was to issue Quicken 98 for free. 
you know, even though newer versions were out, they said, hey, we'll give you a free upgrade. Just get off of this buggy software. So I wasn't actually testing it for Intuit. I was uh, testing it for myself. I wanted to just see what the software was like. And uh, that's when I ended up uh, putting in all my information and finding out just just how bad off I was. Jim, I'm curious, you know, you're starting this new job, you're working with the software, you're, you're learning that your financial situation is not as, uh, not as glamorous as it could be. Like, what were you making, you know, when you first started working with this company and when you realized how bad your balance sheet looked, what steps were you actually able to make to improve that? When I started, you know, like I mentioned, I, I was actually a manager at Walmart before then, and I was making 35 K back in, what would that have been? 1999. So when I moved to this new job, I wasn't done with school yet. So I was actually their first part-time employee and they started me out at 25,000 a year part-time. It was a pay cut, but at the time I was still living at home. I was just a young kid. So that was okay with me. But then, yeah, the, (laughs) that's, it's hard to pay off 30,000 in debt when you're making 25,000 a year, but, uh, you know, you I made can it afford the minimum payment, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'd say a little bit more. I think, you know, we talk about housing being the, the biggest cost when you're living at home that makes life much easier. Uh, housing, groceries, all of that was already covered. And my employer was a mile from their house. So I didn't really have to worry too much about that. So, so I was able to put a little bit towards it, but, you know, Quicken had a feature they still do called the debt reduction planner. You know, there's the two different strategies of whether you're you're paying off your higher rate cards first or the the ones for those psychological wins where you're paying off the uh, debts with the smallest amount first. Well, Quicken usually goes by paying off the highest debts first. And, you know, so you basically tell it what you're paying now, how much available you have. And they say, hey, here's what to do. Here's when you're going to be completely done with your debts. And uh, I followed that to a T and I started pushing more and more and was able to get rid of the debt. and a couple of years. And I was more than excited about that. And then just continued on the saving path after that. Jim, that's amazing. I mean, the behavioral side of personal finance, I find is, is the hardest for people. What was it about this Quicken program that like you basically said, okay, I trust you entirely. Like I'm going to follow everything you say. Like that's a pretty wild thing when you really think about it, you know? Well, I mean, it's computer. Computers were amazing to me back then. That was, uh, (laughs) that was all new stuff. I, I loved it. And, uh, I loved the ability to actually see when my payoff day would be. It was fantastic to be able to to actually see the the date. I mean, you can go through this and I think a, a psychological win in itself is to go, "Oh my gosh, I'm I'm only 6 months away from being completely paid off with this. This is fantastic." So, that was my big incentive to get that done. What's interesting about that is once you got to debt free, you know, because you followed this plan, at some point Debt-free was no longer the objective and you started pursuing financial independence and you've been pursuing that for, you know, the duration of this journey. How did you discover, you know, this concept, this idea, what actions did you make to really pursue it? So I think for a number of years, it wasn't really a matter of that. I knew I wanted financial independence, but I did just start saving more. I started increasing what I was putting in my 401k. And I did not understand that the values of 401ks at the time, I didn't understand how important a match was. I didn't know what to invest in. I was just putting money in and, uh, you know, over time that continued to grow, but that wasn't my eye opener. I think the eye opener happened shortly after my daughter was born. That was in 2010. And when I was home with my wife and my daughter for that first week, 
that was fantastic. But then I realized at the end, I had to go back to work. I didn't get to be home with her every day. And that was, that was a crusher for me. That was, that was really tough. So at that point, it was probably a, I don't know, maybe, maybe a few months after that, that I ran into uh, Joe Udo's blog, Retire by 40. And I realized that guy, he's me. This is a guy that retired before 40. I didn't realize that was even, I didn't even realize that was a possibility to be able to do. He was an IT guy. He had a kid. He had, everything was the same. Everything he said, it, it just, it was, it was amazing to me. And uh, so then I, I, I had to come home the one day and say, guess what, dear? Uh, <laughs> we, we have a new plan here. So that's when things really changed for us. That's amazing. And so talk me through from the period where you paid off this 30,000 in credit card debt to when you found retired by 40, what were you doing in that intervening time financially? Well, that's fair. I wasn't, I wasn't spending credit card, uh, using the credit cards very much anymore. That, that made me nervous. I was so excited to be out of debt. It took me a long time to be able to feel comfortable even using them and paying them off every month. I mean, it took me years for that. But in the meantime, as the savings started growing, I started doing different things. I, I, I actually went to a Robert Kiyosaki seminar probably back in 2004, which was fantastic. I got to meet, meet the guy. But he was a good push for me to realize, hey, there are some other options here. And I didn't realize that I, I didn't realize the potential to be able to retire before 40. I just thought, hey, there's some other income streams that I can create here. So I actually bought a house, uh, a rental house. Oh, it's been about 15 years ago now. And we just sold it last year, had the same renters there, but I, I bought it with the idea I'll move in, fix it up, start renting it out. That was one of the avenues I decided to go, but I didn't realize that I also, I don't know anything about fixing up houses. I don't know anything about real estate. So I kind of had to work my way through it and that didn't go perfect, but it was, uh, it was okay. You know, I'd love to go back and actually take a look at your, at the earning side of the equation for you. When you started, you know, you're, you're making 20 something odd thousand and then you got this bump in pay. And then you mentioned that you went to middle management, which I would imagine more responsibility comes with an increase in pay, but going from paying down $30,000 in credit card debt to financial independence and walking away from your job at the end of 2018, there's a pretty big divide there. And you announced in 2017 that you had hit a million dollar net worth. I mean, that that's incredible, right? I mean, you're not doing this on, you know, a doctor or, or a lawyer's salary. From an earning perspective, what did that journey look like for you? Sure. Um, when I was part-time, I was at the 25K. And then uh, when I got out of school, I went to full-time and they brought me up to about 35. And then when I hit middle management, probably uh, uh, about 2006, I don't remember the exact date, but uh, um, so they basically doubled that. So we'll say I went to about 70, 75. And then, uh, you know, over time that just continued to grow, I'd say for the last few years, we finally hit the very low uh, six figure number. And that's kind of where I ended with things. So Jim, that jump, when you got promoted to middle management, normally companies don't give a massive, massive increase. I'm wondering, did you have to campaign for that? Was that just like, hey, this is the the pay for this new job. Talk me through that. Like, is there anything actionable for the audience there? Well, there's a few pieces there. I mean, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn too much, but I was a pretty valuable employee. At least I think so. You know, I love my job. I was friendly. I did, did good work and, and everything. 
And so you got to remember, I was going to be leaving the state. I was planning to move to Arizona at the time. And so my boss was trying to give some incentive. What can I do to keep you to stay? So, and again, I I was still pretty young even then. And uh, I didn't want to, I I didn't really have a uh, specific number in mind or anything like that. This was something he basically had just offered to me. And uh, no, I didn't negotiate or anything. I wasn't really bright when I look back at things. I, (laughs) I didn't do all the right things, but but, but that, and you know what, that's a good point though, too, is you don't have to do all the right things as long as you keep going in the right direction. That's awesome. And I, and I want to slow down on that. And then in particular, from your boss's perspective, you were indispensable. His life would be more difficult if, if you weren't there. And, and I was just, if we could slow down on that, do you have any, like, why was that right? Clearly that was his perspective. He was like, I need to hold on to Jim and make sure he's here. But what was it that you did outside of being friendly? You know, obviously that made you such an asset to the company. Maybe I was kind of a, a model employee, I think, to a point. I definitely wasn't perfect, obviously, but I was good at what I did. I was a good engineer. I was good in the field. I, I enjoyed going to training. You know, we used to go to training, you know, all over the country. They'd send us out, you know, as a single guy with no kids. I, I loved it. I'd come back with knowledgeable information. I'd share it with everybody. And then the other piece of this was that the company was growing. When I first started, it was smaller. So at the time, my boss was managing the engineers. So he grown this company from the very beginning, which was in the seventies. And, you know, there was just a couple people at that time to over 40 employees. So it was time for him to step out of that role. Anyway, it was time for him to focus on guiding the ship and having a manager in place to specifically take over on things. So, so it was not just something that was working well for me it was something that was obviously in his favor as well. So Jim, I, I really want to slow down on this for one second. You walk in at some point and said, Hey, I'm moving to Arizona. I'm picturing this in my mind. And, and obviously you're <laughs> going to, you're going to clarify what actually happened. But at that point, did he mull this over? Did he say like, Hey, I really want to put a package together. What was the actual interaction? Cause I think there might be a lesson here beyond just Hey, I'm moving. (laughs) Maybe I'm thinking about leaving my job. Obviously you don't do this as a bluff, but there might be something there. So I'd love if you could just expand on that. Yeah. When I had decided to do this, I believe it was like in a January or February type of uh, time of the year. And the plan was to move later in the summer. And so again, I appreciated the loyalty that he had given me and wanted to give him ample notice that I would be leaving. So yeah, I'd gone to him and did a closed door meeting. I filled him in and said, well, I appreciate you telling me. And that was kind of the end of things. And then a couple of days later, he said, hey, why don't we meet up? And we met up for breakfast. And uh, that's when he presented his idea to me. And I said, well, let me think about it and get back to you and uh, decided, yeah, that would be the right thing to do. So that's basically how it transpired. Not, not that exciting, but that was basically it. So I wanted to circle back and take a few more minutes and actually talk about what changes you made after finding this concept from Joe Udo over retire by 40 of financial independence, this idea that you didn't have to work forever. You didn't have to, you know, retire in your golden years, but you could claim more of your time back. And and there's a couple points that I wanted to make. One is that like, you're not doing this, you know, you talked about early days, you didn't have any living expenses or you didn't have any home expenses because you were staying living in your parents' basement, basically like married kids (laughs) like that. You know, you're not married kids living in your parents' basement for the 20 years. Obviously your, your expenses increase. You're doing this with a family, but 
with these raises that you got, what actions were you taking to increase your savings rate? You know, how did you get more polished at this journey to financial independence as you went farther down the path? Well, again, I wasn't doing all the the right moves, but uh, you know, the four hundred one k was probably the the biggest one. You know, by the time I actually left in two thousand eighteen, my four hundred one k was about seven hundred thousand. So I had definitely built that up over time, but I was just increasing the percentage that I was throwing in there. And I was making all the wrong moves. I was investing in high fund mutual funds and different things like that. But I did increase that over time. And then the other piece was I started saving and, you know, we ended up buying another rental property in 2015. So that was part of where my savings went to. And now that's given us a nice steady cash flow. But other than that, we we started trimming expenses that were unnecessary and that's it. I mean, this was this is a very straightforward journey, I think, in a way. I didn't do anything crazy. Did you ever calculate or track your savings rate over time? And and do you have any numbers to share with us? I didn't track it early on, but I can tell you for the last few years that that we were pushing a 60% savings rate, which I thought was really good because as my wife had dropped down to part-time and, and wasn't working at the very end there. So I think we were doing pretty good. I've seen you give several presentations on geo arbitrage and you have some really audacious goals and, and we want to cover that more, but I'm curious, this idea of once you retire going and spending time overseas, like what prompted that idea? That's a great question. As we were getting closer. So I found Joe's blog and, you know, we started saving more, we started cutting down expenses, but as we continued on, I felt like I wasn't getting there fast enough. So that's when I started looking at different ideas. And then for whatever reason, I thought, what if we move to somewhere with, with a lower cost of living? Then I started even thinking about looking at a foreign country. If we're going to move, why not take a look at places you know that might be considered a paradise? Over time, it took probably a couple of years, but that's when Panama kind of crept up at us. And remember, at the time, I didn't even know what geo-arbitrage was. This was just kind of a, a thought that I had for myself of, how can we get what our net worth goal is? How can we bring that down, bring our expenses down so I can quit my job even sooner? And so we decided to look at Panama. We dug into that for quite a while. I think my wife thought the whole thing was a big joke. And then, <laughs> and then finally, one day she said, okay, well, if we're really going to consider this, let's go down there. Let's go take a look at it. I think there was an ulterior motive there. I think really she was just after a vacation. <laughs> and <laughs> so we went down there. We actually went down with my brother and sister-in-law and of course my wife and daughter. And we went down to check it out. We treated it like a recon mission. This was in 2017. We purposely didn't get like an all-inclusive place or anything because I wanted to know what it was like to actually live there. So the whole plan was, let's go there. We'll go to grocery stores to get groceries. We'll go to, to restaurants. We'll talk to people. We'll Let's pretend we're actually living there. We spent, uh, I think it was nine or 10 days there. And we actually drove across the whole country to different places. We'd stay for a couple days. It's not a big country. It's probably about the size of one of the Carolinas. Eventually, we got to the place that I was most excited about, which was Boquete, Panama. That's where they have this they're in the mountains and the weather is 75 degrees every single day. And it was wonderful. So at that point we decided, Hey, this is a possibility. We should plan on this. I think it's important to realize though, that we ended up 
determining, well, when I say we, this would be my wife. She realized, Hey, what if we go down there? You quit your job. And now we don't like it for whatever reason. We stay there a year and we're like, this is just not for us. And we have to move back. She goes, you're going to, you're going to have to go back to work. I don't know why it was, I have to go back to work and not her, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that she was, was, she was adamant yeah. on that point though, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a valid point because now suddenly we'd be, I, I don't want to say trapped, but in, instead of being able to make a, a decision on what we wanted necessarily, it would be like, Hey, what's the lesser of two evils? Do we stay in a country where we're just not happy or do we move back and you have to go back to work, which is what you don't want to do type of thing. So I ended up working for a couple of years longer after that, just so we can kind of continue to just keep saving and, and investing. Jim, I've got a whole bunch of questions, but my first one, I, I want to go back to like that initial conversation you had with your wife of, Hey, I think we should do this. I think we should really consider it. How do you broach that subject? What did that look like? You know, I, I just can't even imagine what it looks like. You'd think it would be delicately, right? You'd think, uh, <laughs> lots <laughs> but, uh, of land, flowers, wine. That's right. But not in this household. I'm the, uh, I'm the guy always with crazy ideas. So when I laid that out, it was kind of a, yeah, 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 I, I get it. We'll look at that. But then I just kept looking and looking and digging more and more. And, you know, we were looking at different countries down there, Costa Rica. When I say we, that, that was still me, but eventually <laughs> I, when I research something, it's not a quick hour type of deal. I mean, I spent months and months digging into this and, well, and determined. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because Brad and I are both uh, fans of Trello. We use it personally for productivity and planning, but I have heard that your Trello board for this geo arbitrage <laughs> Panama trip is like the stuff of legends. <laughs> it's insane. There is, there is so much information on there. I, you know, there's a lot of things you don't consider when you're moving to a foreign country. I mean, little things like how are people going to communicate with you? How are our parents going to call you? in a foreign country with a SIM card and a Panamanian number. Yeah. There's things like hangouts and Skype and all of that, but now you got to teach people who aren't necessarily technology savvy how to do things like that. So I had to figure out ways to do different things like that. But this list, I probably have, I couldn't even tell you how many lists are on this, uh, this Trello board, but it's pretty incredible. So Panama is ultimately what you locked in on. Are you planning on living in like an expat community? Are you going to just be a Panamanian citizen in essence, and just, Hey, here we are. We're going to rent a house or buy a house in a town. I mean, what, what does the actual day-to-day -day look like for you? We'll be living in a hut with dirt floors. No, it's uh it's actually a, uh, uh, Boquete is a, a smaller city. Like I said, it's in the mountains. I believe the population's maybe around 30,000. And of those I'd say maybe 4,000 are expats. So we'll still be in the, the minority but it's still a pretty good community of people there. And we learned while we were there, I mean, we met all kinds of people, all kinds of expats and the Panamanians are so friendly. It was just fantastic. But as far as if we're going to become a citizen, the easy thing to do would be to just become a citizen and call it a day. We can actually do that right now. You and I, the three of us could go and just get the process rolling. We get an attorney and, and we'd be good to go. But it's expensive in relative terms. It, it would probably run us, we'll say about $7,500 for the three of us to get an attorney involved and go through the whole process. So instead of doing that right off the bat, my concern is we get down there and we don't like it. And now we just drop 7,500 and we go, 
well, I don't know. What are we, what are we going to do? So I want to make sure we like it before we go that final step. So when we go down there, we're going to be, we're basically going to be tourists for that first year while we're figuring out our game plan. And with that, we have to follow their tourist rules. That means that we can only stay in the country for 180 days at a time. And then we have to leave the country for 30 days to reset the cycle, which doesn't sound too bad. So that's twice in the year. But the catch is for some reason, your foreign driver's license, your US driver's license is only good for 90 days at a time down there. So that basically supersedes everything. And we'll need to leave every 90 days for 30 days to reset the clock. And then we're saying we're going to give it a full year to figure out if it's the right place for us. But I would imagine probably after the first six or seven months, we'll have a pretty good idea if we're going to come back or if we're going to stay there. And if we decide we're going to stay there, then we'll uh, apply for a a visa down there. You talked about the weather. And I'm curious, you know, based on the research that you've done, I think our audience would be interested in what you estimate the annual cost of this lifestyle that you're carving out for yourself would actually be. Because one of your tenants were, hey, if we can do this, we're not going to need as much in our portfolio. And then you kind of chickened out and made sure your portfolio could you know, cover you either way. But still, the initial premise was it will cost less over there. And I think people, you know, assuming that you're not going to be in a dirt hut, you know, or a hut with dirt <laughs> floors are kind of curious, what do you anticipate based on this legendary Trello board? What do you anticipate the cost of this lifestyle to be? And what do you get for that? Yeah, I would say for most people, it depends how you want to live, obviously. I mean, it's just like anything here, but I would say it's about 60% of what it is here where we're, and we're in Cleveland right now, Cleveland, Ohio, which is already a a pretty low cost city. So you figure it's going to be about 60% of that. Buying homes will probably run you about the same as what it does in this area, but renting for whatever reason right now is extremely cheap. The average right now for a two-bedroom house in Boquete, Panama will run about $750 right now, which is incredibly cheap, but that also includes utilities. And in some cases, it it even includes like a, a weekly gardener. So that's pretty cheap. The groceries are cheap. But if you go down there and you go, you know what? I want a really nice house. I want this and that. Beachfront property, we won't have beachfront property. We'll be up in the mountains. But you know, if somebody wanted that, your costs obviously go up. If you want to live like an American and you're like, I'm only going to eat Kraft macaroni and cheese. Well, your prices go up as well. So I'm sure there'll be. This we'll Kraft probably macaroni be and cheese, that's what breaks the budget, huh? <laughs> <laughs> when it's imported <laughs> to Panama, Jonathan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but that's exactly it. We'll be somewhere in the middle. And I would anticipate for us, my guess is it'll probably run us about 25000 a year to live there very comfortably. If we say 30 grand, I think that's to give us, you know, not an excessive budget, but to be able to live pretty well down there. So Jim, I'm curious, you obviously have a family and you have a young daughter and you're going to be living in Panama full time. Have you and your wife had discussions with your daughter on like what this life is going to look like? She's going to be a Panamanian citizen, right? In, in all likelihood for a significant part of her childhood. Talk me through what you guys have discussed internally on that. So this might be a shocker based on how the conversation's gone so far. But at one point I was the one that finally called the timeout and said, Hey, is this the right thing to be doing for our daughter? Am I being selfish? Are we being selfish by 
hey, we want to retire to, we'll call it paradise, and we're not thinking about our daughter on this. My wife, who's usually the more conservative of the two of us, she instantly, like apparently she's already been thinking about this, said, I think it's exactly the opposite. I think we're giving our daughter a cultural experience that she wouldn't be able to get otherwise. A lot of kids will never get a chance to do this. So this could be a great experience for her. So we've kind of laid it out as with this first year, like I said, we're going to be having to leave for month increments at a time every few months. And schools tend to frown on when you uh, want to pull your kid out for a month at a time every few months. So for that first year, we'll be homeschooling her, which I think will be a good transition anyway, make it a little easier for her versus just moving to a foreign country and throwing her into a foreign school and everything. But after that, we'll kind of see how that goes. You know, I talked to a lot of people, particularly at FinCon, that have homeschooled their kids, and they talked about a lot of the positives and how great it is. So it's possible we may continue homeschooling or after, but if we don't do that, then uh, the private schools, the international schools down there are, in Cleveland, we're talking about maybe an average of like almost 20 grand a year, but down there, it, it would run us maybe about two grand a year for fantastic schools from what I understand. So we'll figure some of that out. We don't know the whole plan. Our daughter is fantastic at making friends. She's just the social butterfly and uh, she's as sweet as pie. So, you know, we actually, when we were down there on our visit before, we were enjoying a couple cocktails at a tiki bar the one evening and our daughter ran off and was playing and the beach with a bunch of the other kids there, you know, we have a picture of her holding this girl's hand in the, uh, the ocean and the girl doesn't speak a lick of English and my daughter doesn't speak any Spanish. And it's just, I think it'll work out. I don't, I don't have any concerns. I think things will be good. And if they're not, if they're not, it's no big deal. We come back. I mean, it's not the end of the world. So awesome. But this was your plan, right? You've been plotting this for several years and suddenly you get to the point where there's kind of no excuses, regardless of whether or not you go and you stay there or it doesn't work out and you come back, your numbers are still going to work. You no longer need your nine to five, but that kind of sets you up for an interesting situation. You're, you have this loyalty to your boss. You've been working for this company for 20 years. You've got to go in and say, Hey, I'm, I'm retiring. Talk to us about that last kind of month of work. <laughs> I think I was a little nervous going in there to talk to him. But when I first said, and, and he knew we went down to Panama and, and had checked it out. And this was, if you remember, we decided to wait a little bit before, you know, so I can grow my income enough that we'd be able to take care of ourselves. So it wasn't immediately after that. It was still probably another year and a half before I told him. And I let him know and he blew it off. He was like, yeah, whatever. He, he didn't believe that that was actually going to happen. And that went on. For months, you know, I let them know, hey, here's, I, and that's, you know, maybe that's because it's either because he thought our plans were completely crazy that he didn't believe it, or because, again, this is a similar move that I had made when I told him we were going to move to Arizona. So maybe he thought that this was just a ploy to try and get more money out of him or something. So that conversation didn't really go anywhere. But I, I said, hey, we're going to be doing this in the, in the summer of 2020 is what I had initially told him. I went kind of crazy with uh, saving money and increasing uh, income through different side hustles and different things like that. And we were able to push the things up by an entire year. And so I had gone to him the 
summer of last year and said, so I got some additional news. Not only are we going, but we're pushing this up by an entire year. My last day will be December 31st, 2018. And I think that's when he finally realized this was, this was serious. So do they uh, throw you a retirement party? Like, how does that work? (laughs) That's kind of a sore subject with me. (laughs) (laughs) No, they didn't. And I'm okay with that to a point because I don't really need a retirement party, but I thought it was kind of a, kind of a, I'll say kind of a jerk move because 20 years with the same company, other people that have retired from there over the years, everybody gets a retirement party. I didn't get any of that. So it was okay though. A bunch of us went out and uh, celebrated with some drinks a little bit before I, I left and it was a great time and I would have preferred that any day, but, uh, but no, no retirement party. Wow. Crazy, right? So did they just like not, or he, I guess, not believe you were retiring? Like, I mean, what, besides just him, I guess, what did other people think? <laughs> so you got all different levels in there. Some people are like, yeah, yeah, and you'll I just, be back. I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want to highlight, this is the story, right? I mean, this, people talk about being in the fire movement, right? So financial independence, early retirement. So the early retirement for many people is a big part of this. They plan on walking into their employer and they are not at the traditional golden age. There is probably going to be an interesting interaction. This is this, and you just live through this. So that's kind of like why I think we want to slow down on this for our audience. (laughs) That's part of it, especially with my boss. He, after this whole no retirement party thing, it irked me. And I went in there and talked to him about it. And I said, what's the reason? What's the whole point? Why are we not doing this? Is it because you're not happy I'm leaving or you don't believe I'm retiring? And it kind of went through this whole thing and he said, no, no, it's none of that, you know, but the more we talked, finally, he admitted, you're not really retiring. He said, you're going to be working somewhere. It's just the way it is, you know, and I threw some things back at him. I said, well, you know, the, the one guy he left, he, he's got rental properties right now. He maintains them. He's not actually retired, you know, and, uh, th- there was no, there was no response. And I, and I don't want to dwell on that again. I, Love the guy to death. He was a great guy. He's always treated me well, but uh, but that was just a, a little thing. But as far as the other employees go, you know, a lot of people were happy for me. You kind of had a little bit of everything. You had the people who thought you'd be back within a year or so, and you had the people who were excited and they're like, oh my God, that's fantastic. I wish we could do that. And then you had the people that actually took it a step further. And there, there wasn't very many, but a couple of people that said, well, that asked the question that I wanted to know, how are you doing this? How can I do this? You know, and that's the thing that I want. I want people to be excited about this. The fire spreading, Jonathan. <laughs> I do love that phrase, <laughs> <laughs> but wait, like put yourself in the shoes. Now, January 1st, 2019, you are retired early. Like just walk me through your mindset. Maybe that first day, that first week. And then, you know, it's been a couple months. You guys are like plotting out your first day. Where are you at now? Let's take it back just one day further. Let's take it back to everybody in the world celebrated with me on December 31st, New Year's Eve. We all celebrated my early retirement, which was fantastic. (laughs) So that first week was very normal, I think, to a point. I mean, it was more like a vacation than anything. And we don't normally do staycation. So it wasn't normal in that aspect, but it was normal because my daughter was off of school still. She was on Christmas break. So we just spent all our time together doing stuff, which was fantastic. But there was no, 
there was no working. There was no, it, it was kind of like a vacation. The second week when she went back to school, I struggled. It was so not what I expected. I had such a hard time because I couldn't get a routine and I felt like I wasn't getting things done. I was, I, in my mind, all this time I had planned, you know, I don't know if, if everybody's as anal retentive as I am, but I have lists of things that here's what I want to get done. You know, one day, one day I'll get to this, this, and this, you know, I got this giant list of things. I didn't get it done. What's going on here. I had thought for whatever reason, I'm going to retire and boom, everything's good. Suddenly I get more than 24 hours in a day and I can get everything done. And it didn't happen. And I struggled big time with that. I couldn't sleep. It took me probably about three to four weeks before I was finally in a position where I started to get the hang of it. And that threw me off. That was, that was actually very hard. Right now, there are no problems anymore. I'm content. I get it. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy. Every day is wonderful. But it, it was a struggle for that, that time there. So what does getting the hang of it look like? What does your week look like this week, for instance? I now wake up at seven o'clock, which is uh, late for some, early for others. But uh, that is because that's when my daughter wakes up for school. So she'll come into bed with me. We'll we'll watch a little bit of TV and then she'll get ready for school. My wife will take her to school and then the two of us will go work out, which is that was what I was most excited about doing. I've always put that off for way too long. So that's been fantastic. And then after that, you know, we'll go eat some lunch or do whatever. Uh, the weather's changing. So now some of our workouts include actually being outside instead of going to the exercise room here at the apartment complex. Then I work on the blog for a little bit. I catch up, I do the bills. And then when my daughter comes home, it's fantastic. Now I can spend time and focus on her instead of focusing on things that I didn't get a chance to do during the day because I was working 40 hours a week. And you guys are moving to Panama the summer of this year, right? So there's got to be some adjustments and processes that are being put in place to prepare for that as well. Yeah, you'd, you'd think that, you know, with, with us being, <laughs> this is a little unusual because, you know, a lot of people, they retire and boom, they're done. For us, it's a two-step process where we retire and instantly we're now on, it's time to prep for this Panama move, which, you know, we sold our house last year. And went from a 2,400 square foot house with a basement to a thousand square foot small apartment and a storage unit with some of our belongings. And our goal when we're moving to Panama, we're not taking this stuff. We're we're taking two suitcases each, which might sound like we're skimping, but I don't need all this crap. We don't we don't need that. It's it's really about being together and doing stuff. So that's easy. But in the meantime. We have to sell or get rid of all this stuff. And uh, the desk I'm sitting on right now, I just made a deal this morning on offer up and ladies coming to pick it. I've, I've been selling all our furniture. We don't have any tables. We don't have dressers. It's been getting crazy, but it occupies a lot of time as we're prepping for this. You know, Brad, I think what we should do is at the end of this year, have Jim back on from Panama and catch us up on how those first six months have gone. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, we'd love that, Jim. Do we get to uh, have the conversation in Spanish by then or no? <laughs> I don't even think we could do Duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim, this has been amazing on most shows. That would be the end of the episode. But on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? I'm more than excited. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, 
trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation? These questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. Jim, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. Yeah, well, that's definitely going to be Joe Udo's site, Retire by 40. You know, He's the reason I sought financial independence. And even though he's been doing this for so long, his blog is still fantastic. He's open and honest about his finances and life. And you really feel like you know the guy. So it's definitely going to be Retire by 40. Yeah, that's so interesting. This is actually the second time that he's been mentioned on the show, just within a relatively short period of time. Craig, who we interviewed in episode 122, also referenced him as a really big inspiration for his financial independence journey. So we'll have to follow up on that. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. I'm going to cheat a little bit on this one. I'm going to call out Jim Collins's entire stack series as my pick for this. I believe he started it in 2012, but I didn't come across it until a couple of years ago. And for anyone not familiar, he wrote about 35 blog posts so far on the stock market. And you'd think it'd just be some boring rehash content, but it's not. It's insightful, it's logical, and it's fascinating. And I learned so much from those posts that I refer the series to anyone interested in understanding the right way to invest in the stock market. The guy's a rock star. Yeah, I'm right there with you. For me, the two pieces of content that were just like paradigm shifting for me were the stock series and Mr. Money Mustache's shockingly simple math article, like those two, just they just changed my life. I almost called that one out too. That's funny that you <laughs> said that. That was going to be the other one, but I figured that one's probably too common. And also just to our audience, definitely go. we'll have the links to Jim's series um, in all the show notes for today's episode, but also we got the opportunity to interview JL Collins, episode 19 of our podcast and also episode 34, where we went over some of those tenets of his stock series. If you haven't yet listened to those, I think that's an incredibly valuable use of your time as well. I listened to those podcasts too with Jim Collins that you did, and those were fantastic. I believe there were two of them, right? Yeah, 19 and 34, and they kind of go through one- just that why index fund investing is so powerful and two, how to prepare for bumps in the road. So it's just, yeah, it, it really, he is the perfect spokesperson for why it's so critical to keep it simple. All right, Jim, question number three, your favorite life hack. Okay. I thought about this one for a while, but you'll have to bear with me because I'm, I'm going to get a little dark for a minute here, but without a doubt, it's that I don't take life too seriously. You got to hear me out on this one. I used to be a really shy, quiet kid growing up, and eventually I hit high school and I was still the shy kid. But during the summer after that first year of high school, I hit a time in my life where I seriously contemplated suicide. I can't, I'm the downer on this, uh, this episode, but, and I can't really explain why it's just where my mind was at the time. And over the past couple of decades, I realized that I most likely have bipolar disorder, my mom thinks it's a reason my dad actually did commit suicide when I was in the first grade. But we're done with that. That's not the point. The point is that I specifically remember having a conversation with myself at that time. Instead of taking the easy way out, I thought, what if instead of killing myself, I change who I am and live life the way I want to live it? Instead of taking life too seriously, I'll enjoy it and have fun and laugh. And if it doesn't go the way I want, well, I can always go back to the other option. And that was it. From that moment on, everything changed. I started talking to everyone and their brother and laughed about everything. Everything was a big joke. My eyes opened and life became completely different. As I got older, 
I kept that same attitude and realized that that's what makes life enjoyable. Like not only that, it makes other people around you feel good. And so getting back to the life hack, the rewards from this are everywhere. Like when you treat someone like a person instead of like a cog in the wheel, they appreciate it and things tend to work out smoother. It has that potential to open doors. And Brad, you actually talked about this recently in a podcast and I don't think you were framing it as a life hack. But it's something I find that produces great things in life. Like when you talk to a customer service person, a restaurant server, a cashier at a grocery store, and you treat them like people, not like they're there to serve you, make conversation, crack a joke. Almost everything in life can have some humor injected into it. And that opens people up. And not only will you be happier in life, but those around you will be as well. And that's my ultimate life hack. That is amazing. And yeah, I've found that is just like a like a force multiplier in my life. But most importantly, it just makes me happier. I get to connect with people, like you said, laugh and have a good time and like meet new people. I, I don't know. I used to be fairly, fairly quiet. I never kind of stepped out outside of my own little lane of the people that I knew. But I've definitely changed in the last couple of years. And it, it's made a hugely positive impact on just my overall level of happiness. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Okay. The uh, quick and dirty one would be when I learned some tough lessons on my first rental property, but I, I think there's actually a bigger one. I'd say that my biggest financial mistake was when I went too far in the other direction and I became obsessed with reaching financial independence. You know, I wanted to reach that goal of leaving my job so bad that I spent hours upon hours of each day trying to figure out ways to cut spending here and there to earn a little more income. It was getting ridiculous and I didn't even realize it. And the irony is that the reason I went down the path toward financial independence was so I could spend more time with my family. And then here I was taking all this time away from them in the meantime. So after a year or so of this, I happened to be listening to an episode of Paula Pants, a Ford Anything podcast. And the episode that was on was good, like they all are. But this one seemed like she was talking directly to me. You know, a lot of it was on skimping and costs and things that don't make much of a difference in the long run and just some other things that resonated with me. But for whatever reason, that show was the light bulb that made me realize what I'd been doing. I was driving. I literally had to pull over. I, I realized I was trading today's happiness for tomorrow's. And that was the kick in the pants I needed. I, I actually wrote a post about it. It was Paula Pant kicked me where it hurts because it was such a big deal to me. But after that, I relaxed a bit more and stopped trying to squeak out a faster path to FI. You know, everything was already automated by then with saving, saving money and retirement plan contributions. So I just had to enjoy the ride and appreciate the here and now with my family. All right, Jim, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. I'm sure this is probably said way too much, but I would say it'd be to start earlier. You know, when you're in your 20s, most kids don't want to think about the distant future. But if you understood the magic of compound interest, you definitely would think about it. And I spend maybe five minutes here and there teaching my daughter things like this. I, I bring it down to a level that makes sense for her. And I don't bore her with too many details because she actually is my younger self. So I want to make sure she understands money's role that, you know, it's a critical tool, but it's not everything either. And so she admires that I retired early and wants to do the same. And I teach her things like saving half of everything and break it down into kid terms about lifestyle inflation and everything. But I'm open with her about money too. So when she talks about it, I open up the books with her to a point, so to speak, but she knows what we spend on rent or dinner or how much money we have. And she might not fully grasp the relative picture on these things yet, but she will. And 
She understands how rental property works and wants to buy multifamily properties when she's older. This is, wow. this is my eight-year-old telling me this. <laughs> uh, you know, I tell her, I wish I had started buying rental property when I was younger. And I'd encourage other listeners to dig into that as well. It might not be the right answer for everyone, but it's something to consider. You know, it's a lot harder to do these things once you're older and have kids and time becomes a little more precious to you. There's so much awesome. in there, man. That's just, that's incredibly actionable advice. And and Brad, I feel like he's setting goals for you now, dude. You've got <laughs> something yeah, to work for. for. <laughs> <laughs> I got to, uh, yeah, get to work uh, educating my kids a little more. We, we try certainly in the background. I don't think we've been quite as overt as you have been, which is uh, inspiring for me, honestly. And it's, it's neat how you look at her as your younger self in that regard. Like the, that is the perfect way to look at this. I, Jim, I, I genuinely, I love that. I'm almost speechless. We talk about actionable tips. There's my actionable tip for the day. So thank you. I taught you something. This yeah. is insane. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we do have a bonus question for you, Jim. Over the past 12 months, what purchase have you made that has brought the most value to your life? The easy out for this would be saying buying my ticket to freedom at the end of this year, but I don't think that's what you're looking for. So when we're talking about material things, I'd probably say my Chromebook. You know, I've been issued a laptop at work and received a new replacement every three years for the past 20 years. Those were my personal computers for half of my life. So this was the first computer I bought for uh, my own personal use. And I'm done with the complexity of IT and wanted something simple. So I bought a mid-level Chromebook and I love it. It just works and works wonderfully. And the bonus, here's, here's my bonus, is that it came with a free Google Home Mini. And I never would have bought one of those outright, but somehow we've accumulated three of these now in our thousand square foot apartment for just over two bucks. And we are completely addicted to those things. All right. Very cool. You know, I've never quite had the nerve to fully rely on a Chromebook. I still feel somehow attached to the Mac and Windows operating systems, but I will trust that it has worked well for you and you seem to have been able to get Skype to work. So that is uh, at this point the, <laughs> <laughs> the biggest hang up. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has been fantastic. You've brought so much value to us personally and to our community. I know there's people listening to this. They're going to want to find out more about your story, want to find out about this legendary Trello board of yours. What is the best <laughs> way for someone to connect with you and connect with your content? Uh, my website by far. Come to my blog, routetoretire.com. I'm also route to retire everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, your, your time with Google Plus is over, so you can't find me there. Yeah, they did retire that one. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. This has been fantastic. Thanks, guys. Definitely appreciate it. All right, to our audience, I hope you got value from today's episode. There are so many people on the path to financial independence, and many of them are going to pull this lever of early retirement. And it is going to be a very interesting situation. And there's so much for those of us that are following in their footsteps to learn from that. And there is so much to prepare for. If you got value from today's episode, and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here, Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to choosefi.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. 
And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.